The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you're not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today is Thursday, so it's time for our weekly visit of my dear friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I'm with you. Yes, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Great to have you on, as always. And what Peter has for us today, as we're approaching Remembrance Sunday, is the real story of persecuted people. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off with today's topic? Andrew, we so often are being presented in the media with examples of people who they claim are being persecuted. Well, I've met real persecuted people and not people who just had their feelings hurt. And uh, it, there's a lot for us to learn uh, from the persecuted. I've been ministering for over 40 years as a missionary to restricted access areas to persecuted Christians. And so since uh, March in 1982, I've been crossing borders, uh, seeking to serve the persecuted countries from Mozambique, Angola, all the way through uh, Congo, Zimbabwe, up to Sudan and throughout Eastern Europe, all the way across uh, from Poland north down to Albania in the south and every country in between. Uh, so uh, my first pastor under whom I was converted and discipled, Reverend Doc Watson, he challenged me after my first cross-border mission to Mozambique in 1982. Many missionaries tell us what they've done. I would be more interested to hear what they've learned. Now, that profound challenge has continually guided me in over 40 years of ministering to persecuted churches, and I've met a lot of very memorable people. Uh, one of them was in Romania, Nikolai Moldovanu. I wonder how many of our listeners have heard of Nikolai Moldovanu. If you're a Romanian, you will immediately recognize the name Nikolai Moldovanu. He's one of the greatest musicians and martyrs for Christ in Romania. During one of my missions to Eastern Europe, Reverend Bill Bathman, who spent 67 years serving persecuted Christians, mostly in Eastern Europe, he introduced me to this extraordinary Christian hymn writer who composed many hundreds of hymns while being tortured by the communists in Romania. Now, Nicola Maldivano is called the Bach of Romania, uh, after Johann Sebastian Bach. In his lifetime, Nicola Maldivano composed more than 6,000 hymns. <laughs> hundreds of those he composed compiled while suffering excruciating torture in the communist prison system of Romania, including the gulags and concentration camps. Well, without any access to the Bible, without access to any books, without any musical instrument, without pen or paper, 
Moldovana determined to compose hymns of praise to God and committed them to his memory to later be put on paper when he was finally released from prison. Richard Wurmbrand testified that Moldovana was one of the greatest saints I met in my 14 years of prison. He came smiling from the torture room. His approach was that of a lamb. While I was protesting against God's abuses against others or myself, he never protested. Indeed, the suffering and the steadfast faith of Nikola Moldovana and his resistance to atheist indoctrination and communist torture came through composing and singing great hymns of the faith. Most of the hymns sung in evangelical churches in Romania today are Nikola Moldovana's compositions. <laughs> Nikola Moldovana was born the 3rd of February 1922 near the Serra Moldova, to a very poor family. He lost his father by age three. His only opportunity for education came through enlisting in the military program called the Army's Children at age 12. And these destitute children lived on military bases to serve the soldiers, as servants for the soldiers. Well, due to his love for music, Nikola Moldovana was soon enrolled in the military brass ensemble band. And the band director recognized his extraordinary talents and helped him develop his musical abilities. So in 1938, at the age of 16, he was converted to Christ. And in 1940, during the Second World War, he wrote his first Christian poem and began to arrange songs as well. So while still a teenager, his hymns were being used in Christian songbooks. Nikolai wrote, I am now seeing God's hand in everything that has happened in my life. And he soon joined the Lord's Army, which is a reformed branch of the Greek Orthodox Church, which was very evangelical and emphasized the need for being born again and for repentance and for having a personal relationship with Christ. So soon after joining the Lord's Army, Moldovan experienced his conversion to Christ, began publishing musical compositions called The Villager's Light, and uh, he served in the army of Romania during the Second World War. He survived the Second World War, enriching the lives of fellow soldiers with great hymns of the faith. During the war, for a month, a whole month, he sold his daily rations of milk and bread in order to afford to buy his first Bible. Romania was invaded by the Soviet Red Army, 1945, and in 1948, the communist regime of Romania declared the Lord's Army illegal. The Lord's Army was not an army as such. The Lord's Army was an evangelical group, like the Salvation Army is in Britain. The Lord's Army was about the same in Romania. So they declared this Christian group illegal and arrested all its leaders. And Nikolai Moldovana continued to worship in secret. Well, Nikolai was accused of publishing propaganda against the state thought crime. Uh, he wrote Christian songs that became a threat to the state. So his hymns were declared a threat to the state. I don't know how many hymn writers of today could be declared a threat to the New World Order, the globalists, but I digress. So Nikolai was sentenced to 12 years in prison. 12 years in prison for composing Christian hymns. 12 years. His hands were disfigured because the communists decided to break every bone in each finger of each hand because he loved to play the piano and the organ to the glory of God. They took a hammer and smashed his fingers. On the day of his arrest, Nikolai whispered to his wife, Lena, look at the skies. It will be the only thing we can share when we are separated. And for many months, Nikolai was not even able to see the skies. He was incarcerated in an underground cell. But when he was later moved to a cell that was above ground, it had a broken window. And in spite of bitter cold winter, he rejoiced that he could share the view of the same sky with his wife, Lena, far away. In prison, Nikolai Moldovana's best friends were Trian Dorish, a prolific Romanian Christian poet from the Lord's Army, 
and Richard Vaughan who would become author of Tortured for Christ and the founder of the Voice of the Martyrs Mission. Both Richard Vaughan and Nikolai Moldovano praised each other for how their encouragement and ministry helped sustain one another through excruciating torture, decades of torture and more. Nikolai Moldovano published 16 songbooks with 400 songs each and 361 songs came from his time in prison. Imagine that, no hymn books, no Bible, no musical instrument, no pen or paper, but think of the mental discipline. He composed these hymns and he committed it to memory and he later was able to put it down writing. And these hymns have stood the test of time and they're still being sung in Romania. Perhaps the most well-known of his songbooks was Songs of Grace, songs released from prison. One of his songs proclaimed, I don't only want to talk about you and your word, but that your life would be in me. And when you lived on earth, in everything, I seek that the Lord Jesus be seen and I want to be like him. I don't want to be part of the group because they would control me. They would enslave me. But in the Lord Jesus, who is truth, there is liberty. The truth will set you free. Who can understand this if he does not belong to Jesus? All that comes into Christian life is a plan of God. You walk and the Holy Spirit guides. I'm human. I can be wrong. I ask that I will not hinder the unfolding of his plan. These are just some quotes from some of his hymns, which, of course, are all in Romanian. So for more than 62 years, God enriched the faith of Romanian Christians through the uncompromising Christian testimony and the courage and the steadfastness of Nicola Moldovano and a rich treasury of over 6,000 hymns that he ultimately gave to the church. He stood fast during 45 years of Romania's darkest years under communist persecution. And even when the communists broke the bones in his fingers, Nicola Moldovano relearned to play the piano later despite his fingers being mangled. To shake his hand was a very strange experience because it was like shaking hands with eagle's talons. His hands were so mangled. All of his songs were taken for the word of God. I did not have a Bible, he said, but I did have the word of God stored up in my memory. And what he had memorized by heart, he was able to compose in these hymns and committed to his memory for years. Before his prison sentence, he had spent much time studying the Bible. And now as he meditated in the word of God that remained in his memory, the Holy Spirit helped him to remember. However, he said, if you don't study, there's nothing for the Lord to bring back to your remembrance. One of Nikolai's compositions was entitled, Break My Will Even With Heavy Blows. Other titles were Only Grace, If We Gather Together in the Lord. Don't Doubt, But Believe. Teach Me To Do Your Will. I Sing To You, O God. Break My Plans. Christians in Romania are still singing these hymns that God gave Nikola Moldovano under torture while in prison over 60 years ago. So that's just one great example. And uh, mentioning Nikolai Moldovano reminds me of the Vaughan who are also family friends of my wife's family. Lenora grew up with people like Richard and Sabina Vaughan on the other side of the dining room table in their home in Gruskemein in Austria. Well, Sabina Vaughan the wife of the famous Romanian pastor Richard Vaughan who is a Lutheran pastor, she testified that before she went to prison, she was very poor. But when she went to prison, she became very rich because she had the only currency that was of any value in prison, she had stored up the word of God into her memory. And so while she is poor in the things of God, she is rich in the currency of God. She had stored up in her heart and mind the word of God. And so from her Bible memorization, she's able to make many others rich during her time there. Well, um, I remember after my first filthy night in a disgusting mosquito-ridden cell in Zambia, 
which was under communist dictator at that time back in 1907, I remembered the words of Richard Vaughan in his book, Tortured for Christ. And I said to the other frontline missionaries with me, an ounce of experience is worth a ton of theory. Uh, we were thrown into an overcrowded prison with an average of 60 prisoners crammed into a single cell 15 feet by 25 feet. We had the opportunity of conducting Bible studies in our prison cells day and night and sharing the word of God with 1,200 prisoners in the open courtyard by day. There's no electricity, there's no plumbing, we didn't have Bibles or sermon notes, but we could share with our fellow prisoners what we had memorized of the scriptures, and I'd learned the importance of this from reading books like Tortured for Christ of Richard Wurmbrandt. Well, Sabina Wurmbrandt, the wife of Richard Wurmbrandt, uh, when she, she was made a slave for five years helping to build these canals in Romania and uh, pull uh, like, like an ox, the women were forced to, to walk along the side, pulling by ropes the barges through the canal uh, while being whipped um, to motivate them further. When she was released after five years, she had a person come to her claiming to have been in prison with her husband, and he had a message to share with the underground church. Well, Sabina Wurmbrandt was understandably cautious, so she said, before we go any further, brother, would you please lead us in prayer? And as he stumbled and stuttered, she looked up at him and said, there now, aren't you ashamed of yourself? Wouldn't you like me to explain to you how you can become a real Christian? And he was a spy, of course, uh, who had been sent to try and infiltrate the underground church. There's a lot that we can learn from the persecuted church in Eastern Europe. I was told by our friends in Romania uh, that if they were to use the word sour and milk, we to know that there's an informer nearby. And uh, uh, during my first Sunday that I was preaching in Romania back on my honeymoon, actually, with my uh, wife, Lenora, uh, we were in Romania for Easter 1989, uh, still under Ceausescu and the persecution at that stage. And uh, I said... There will be uh, false Christians, uh, informers in the congregation tomorrow. He said, oh, yes, no, definitely. Um, and they must report back to the security, the secret police, what you say. I said, well, what do you want me to say? He said, well, make the gospel very, very clear because these spies can become our evangelists. They've got to report everything we say. So make the gospel clear. That way they can communicate that also to the higher ups because we wouldn't be able to reach them any other way. Make sure that they can't mistake what uh, the gospel is. And... Uh, very brave people. So uh, at some times in a meal or something, that something says, the milk is sour, sour milk. And that would let you know there's an informer nearby, very careful what you say. And so I said, how do you know who are the informers? And they said, oh, it's, it's easy. I said, well, please tell me, because we have trouble telling who false Christians in the West. And uh, our, our friend there made it uh, clear, Dr. Um, Paul Negroot, he said, a real Christian loves God. A real Christian loves the Bible. A real Christian loves to pray. A real Christian hates sin. I said, well, that's such a simple four-point sermon right there, but um, hmm, I don't know how many real Christians we've got in the West. And he said, oh, we don't count our members by who attend the Sunday morning service. We count our members by who attend the midweek Bible study and prayer meeting. And by that standard, you want how many real Christians we have in the West either. So there's so much to learn from Eastern Europe. And just notice what's, what's going on in the world right now. Uh, what we have is, uh, at this moment in Europe, the largest numbers of Christians in Europe, and I've said it several times before on your show, but it bears repeating, the largest numbers of Bible-believing, born-again, evangelical Christians in all of Europe are in Russia. 
The second largest number of Christians in Europe is in Ukraine. Third largest number of Christians in Europe is in Romania. Now, we're not talking about percentage of the population, but numbers. So isn't it interesting that the largest and fastest growing churches in Europe are all behind what used to be the Iron Curtain, which means that violent communist persecution for decades, in the case of Russia, seven years, uh, and atheist indoctrination, very vigorous indoctrination by atheism, failed to destroy the church in the East. In fact, the churches in the East have revived to such an extent that uh, the last I heard, they were building 200 new churches just in Moscow. Uh, the growth's phenomenal. Uh, do you know that back when the communists took over the Soviet Union, uh, what was then the Russian Empire in 1917, there were five, uh, sorry, 50,000 churches, 50,000 parishes, 50,000 congregations in the Russian Empire. Well, by 1941, when Operation Barbarossa began, that had dwindled down to actually less than 200. There were barely 200 Christian churches in all of the Soviet Union by 1941. Well, today, there's more than 30,000 just Orthodox, Russian Orthodox churches in Russia, and that's not counting the thousands of other denominations there too. 80% of the people in Russia today claim to be baptized church members in good standing with their local church, which is quite extraordinary, and you can't compare that to anywhere else in Europe. The the church attendance in Russia is uh, sky high beyond, uh, you take something like Great Britain. Before the First World War, church attendance in Britain was way over the 60% um, of people in church every Sunday. Uh, before the Second World War, it was down to 42% in church every Sunday. Um, after the war, it dwindled down to about 4%. I think right now it's hovering between 4 and 5% church attendance. And that's not suggesting those churches are good churches, those are just church attendance that's, that uh, shows you how uh, low the church attendance has gone. You know, some parts of Europe, like Switzerland, church attendance, at least before the COVID cult lockdown, was around 12%. Uh, Germany was about 5 to 6% church attendance. But you go to Eastern Europe and you can have even a majority of people attending church in some countries. So uh, interesting that the persecuted church seems to have done much better then the church in the West, which had all this freedom, but who have in many cases been seduced by disgusting, degrading Hollywood's degeneration and uh, have been confused by the lamestream, mainstream media with the Bolshevik Broadcasting or Brainwashing Corporation and uh, Sly Magazine and Newspeak and Useless News and World Report and uh, the Clinton or Communist News Network and all these other... Uh, the, the Fake news and the uh, disgusting defilement, which they call entertainment, and of course the, in many cases, indoctrination gulags, which are called education and schools, have done more damage to Western Christians, along with the compromising Christianity and all too many pulpits, who are willing to put more energy into the COVID cult and masquerade madness and the salvation by vaccination message than they ever have with the Great Commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it intriguing that you see greater spiritual life, greater spiritual energy, more evangelical zeal behind what used to be the Iron Curtain than what was once part of the free democratic West. So I think there's a lot we can learn from the persecuted churches. And uh, uh, what do we learn from the persecuted churches? Well, we are commanded to pray for them. Hebrews 13 verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained to them. And 
Inasmuch as you did unto one of these, these, my brethren, you did it to me, we must care for the persecuted, we must pray for them, we must support them. And I've been traveling behind the Iron Curtain and serving persecuted Christians for the last 40 years, and uh, now in, in Muslim Middle East jihadist areas. But we must remember that these precious brothers and sisters in Christ who've gone through the fires of tribulation, they have much to teach us. And they fear God, and therefore they were able to stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends of Daniel, who could declare before Nebuchadnezzar, who was threatening to throw them at the fiery furnace for refusing to bow before his idol, our God, whom we serve, is able to save us, and he will. But even if he does not save us, we still will not bow before your idols, nor will we serve your gods. And so what can we learn from the persecuted? Well, they love God. They love the word of God. They love prayer. They hate sin. And I think there's so much that we can learn. And that's why uh, over three, 30 years ago, over three decades ago, um, I was part of an initiative to launch the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted, IDOP. And we now run the IDOP Africa section. And we've got the IDOP, or IDOP hyphen Africa, uh, website in order to promote uh, remembering the persecuted church. Now, in November, we tend to remember the uh, fallen, those who paid the supreme sacrifice in wars before. And... Uh, that's because the First World War ended with the armistice at the 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918. And that was why Rhodesia, my home country where I grew up, and had declared its independence at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 1965. And it said that Harold Wilson was more angry with the timing of the um, uh, independence declaration Rhodesia than by the fact of it, because what Rhodesia was doing is taking the most holy day and hour in the English calendar, and using it to declare independence. To make a point, Rhodesia had actually contributed more men uh, percentage to its population than any other section of the British Empire and British Commonwealth in the First and Second World War. Even the Korean conflict, Rhodesia was involved. And uh, Rhodesia had, other, in other words, done its duty to help protect Britain and fight its wars. But it was meant to be one for all and all for one. And when we were being targeted by international communism and the Soviet Union, and we were in the front line of the uh, battle in the Cold War, the hot part of the Cold War and the sharp end, as the Soviets supported Russian-armed uh, Chinese and, and Soviet-armed uh, guerrillas coming in with their landmines, strellers, anti-vehicle mines and heat-seeking missiles to shoot our civilian aircraft out of the sky and kill the survivors, mind you. Uh, when that happened, <clears throat> the... the the British government not only didn't help Rhodesia, they actually sanctioned us and uh, gave information to the terrorists themselves that undermined many of our counter-terrorist operations. So the 11th of November is significant. Therefore, in IDOP, we determined to take the second Sunday in November as an international day of prayer for the persecuted. So along with remembering those who have died for uh, their country and for causes and in the military in different wars over the years, which is normally the 11th of November. Uh, we, for example, this year, the 13th of November, we marking as a day to call the church to remember those who have been persecuted and are being persecuted now. And some people would be surprised to hear that at this moment, today, there are 400 million Christians worldwide living under governments that persecute the Christian church. 400 million Christians in 66 countries of the world which severely restrict or persecute believers. I mean, imagine that. And uh, uh, at the moment, which countries at the top of the list? Normally used to be North Korea and Saudi Arabia. And now it's Afghanistan. 
because there's all those Christians that America betrayed and left behind, and even left behind the the information, the biometric data, and all the details and files of Afghans who had been informants or translators for interrogators and helpers in different ways. When the Americans betrayed Afghanistan, they betrayed the Christians in Afghanistan too. Many Afghans had come to Christ, and I don't know how many have survived, but uh, they've been wiping out Afghans um, uh, since America betrayed them over a year ago, uh, almost a year and a half ago now. And uh, that just is terrible to think that a country that the U.S. claimed to have liberated, freed, 20 years ago, uh, was betrayed, and it is immediately at the top of the list uh, of of the persecuted churches. They've got worse persecution, the least amount of freedom, which is like none at all uh, in Afghanistan. And so 20 years, thousands of Americans and Europeans dead, hundreds of thousands of Afghans dead, and uh, billions and trillions of dollars poured into the place, vast amounts of weaponry left behind for the Taliban terrorists to use, and uh, the legacy... The people are worse off now than they were 21 years ago. Uh, th- these, unfortunately, are realities. And we need to learn from the persecuted church. And we need to serve the persecuted church. And uh, uh, I praise God during the last 40 years, I've had the privilege of serving persecuted Christians in Mozambique and Angola. In Mozambique, uh, I met people who told me how the communists came into their church, put the Bible by the door, and said, you can all leave, just Spit on the Bible as you go out and you can go free. But if you don't spit, we will kill you. And the people said, Jesus taught us, whoever seeks to save his own life will lose it. But whoever loses life for my sake will save it for life eternal. The communists came into a church in Mozambique and said, you worship the lamb, the blood of the lamb. Well, behold the lamb. And they brought a lamb in. And they cut the lamb's head off. And they poured the blood over the people, sprinkled the blood literally over the Christians that sat in the pews and they smeared blood over their face and they said you worship the lamb, the blood of the lamb well the blood of the lamb releases you from all sins worship the lamb and they put the lamb's head on the altar dragged the people, grabbed them by the neck, forced them on the knees uh, down uh, mocked them, smeared blood of their face and then said you've committed idolatry, you've committed the unforgivable sin, you can never be forgiven, you're not going to go to heaven when you die, you're going to come to hell with us for all eternity that gives you an insight into the kind of people you meet in in, uh, communist countries in Angola, I've met with people who were being tortured by the communists in the concentration camps. And in fact, some of them used to work for Swapa. They were terrorists for Swapa, and they somehow fell afoul of their, their group, and they were being tortured, and they were being tortured. And one of these camps up in Angola, which uh, Cuban troops were there as well, and the Cubans who were torturing them, they were in this big pit in the ground uh, with uh, barbed wire over the top and some thorn bushes and, and so on. And uh, all the filth of the of the camp flowed into it. it was the lowest point, so that they were basically living in sewage, and uh, they would be brought out sometimes to be whipped and and tortured in different ways. And one of the men at one point cried out, "Why don't you just kill us and get it over with?" And they were told, "Oh no, no, we don't want to kill you. We don't want to kill you and send you to heaven with God. No, we want you to curse Christ and come to hell with us for all eternity." That gives you an insight. I've been to Chalisa Evangelical Church in Angola, which is a big, magnificent church. I've seen this church from a distance. And, uh, oh, it was destroyed, attacked. Cuban troops came into this church in 1977. And they said, you worship uh, three gods? Well, here they are. And they brought three cattle, 
drove the cattle into the church, chopped the heads of the cattle and put the heads of the cattle on the altar. Well, the pastor, Aurelio Sanchez, stood up and rebuked these Cubans for what they were doing, and he was shot dead immediately. Some elders stood up to support the pastor, and they were machine gunned down. The people started to flee out the doors. Many were machine gunned in the back. About 150 died in and around the church in that attack. The Cubans weren't finished. They then chopped up the pews, made a bonfire of the pews and Bibles and, and pulpit, and had a bonfire of some kind of barbecue and, and roasted the meat and, and celebrated. They burned the church down. And uh, I've seen this church from a distance, the whole roof gone, uh, bullet holes in the walls, um, blood smeared in the walls, and uh, absolute wreck. And uh, But I've seen the church rebuilt too. Uh, later, when the Unita Freedom Fighters liberated this area, they were able to rebuild the church and reconsecrate. And the day of it being reconsecrated, like a phoenix out of the ashes, there were more people outside the church than there were even in it. There was crammed in. Jesus Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I've been in churches bombed in Sudan. In fact, I've ministered about 1,200 services and, and meetings just in Sudan itself, in 27 missions to Sudan between 1995 in 2002 alone, and uh, in those 1,200 meetings, I don't think I ever preached in a church that hadn't been bombed at least once. Some church had been bombed 18 times, 12 times, 10 times, and so on. And uh, also, I'd never spoken in a school that hadn't been bombed at least once. Some of them bombed a dozen times, like in Noob Mountains at Cowder. But um, there are many churches that had been destroyed several times, like the church at Loy, which had been destroyed three times by the Arabs, rebuilt each time. And like the church that will not die, we call it. Uh, and that was the birthplace of Christianity in Sudan. There's been so many cases. I've preached in churches in Romania that have been taken over by the communists and reclaimed after the Christmas revolution that overthrew Ceausescu and is now again being used for the worship of Christ. You cannot destroy the church. Churches are not buildings. Churches are people who've been regenerated, born again by our Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot kill Christians by sending them to meet their Lord in heaven. Death for the Christian is not fatal. It's not final. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And what the communists are doing, actually, is they're just strengthening the church because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Tertullian said that about the martyrs in the Roman uh, Empire who were being killed. And uh, for every Christian killed in the arena, he said there were dozens who were being converted in the stands. And it is true that persecution is actually counterproductive because the church grows stronger under persecution. But you know, the church under Western materialism and easy believism uh, has not done so well. And so in some ways you can say that, that peace and uh, uh, being indoctrinated softens and weakens the church, whereas persecution strengthens. And I know that's true in my own life because as a missionary in the field under fire, and uh, I've been bombed, I've been rocketed uh, under aerial and rocket bombardment, and uh, I've uh, gone through ambushes. And yes, I mean, I've written about that in a book, Frontline, Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, 40 years of working behind enemy lines. When I've been in the field, when I've been in prison, when I've been uh, tortured, interrogated, uh, well, my faith's been stronger, for sure. <laughs> when you're walking in the Noob Mountains, hundreds of kilometers with backpacks filled with Bibles and carrying uh, Christian films to do evangelism behind the lines and evading enemy patrols, you can imagine. Um, you get physically stronger, but you also get spiritually stronger. Whereas when you're back at home where it's safe and easy and legal, peaceful, well, you know, one spiritual life, that's 
tend to get weakened. As we read in the Bible in, in uh, 2 Samuel, that at the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. Now, David, King David was a great man of God. He is the author of most of the Psalms. He's, he's the greatest king. Uh, uh, David's a great hero of the faith. And yet we read the most disastrous fall into sin in, in uh, 2 Samuel 11, when David stayed behind, when instead of going out to war, as kings tend to do, he stayed behind and he fell into sin. And this is the problem. The Western world has been undermined and weakened and seduced by softness and peace. And I think we've got to recognize that the so-called education institutions, which are nothing but indoctrination gulags, and the so-called information media, which is news media, which is more like disinformation and distraction in the lamestream media's case, and the so-called entertainment industry, which is more like defilement and uh, uh, degradation and uh, what it does to bring people the most degenerate entertainment, normalizing blasphemy and vileness and uh, celebrating every uh, breach of the Ten Commands and glorifying that which is actually shameful. Um, that has done far more damage to the church than persecution. So I think we can all learn from the persecuted. The real story of the persecuted people is that uh, this is not about having a feeling search. It's not about people using the wrong gender pronouns or any of the things that people claim to uh, be suffering from these days. This is real serious persecution. I mean, we're talking about, I've walked in congregations such as Rwanda knee-deep in corpses, waist-high in corpses, where 1,200 bodies were in one church building in Rwanda, Natarama Church. I've got pictures of it in, in my book, and uh, uh, I, I had to write the book Rwanda, um, Holocaust in Rwanda, and, and what we have seen, I've seen congregations wiped out, churches on their knees, um, machine gunned uh, dead, uh, hacked to death with the machetes, uh, just excruciating things. And what we've heard from, from the people in the testimonies that have reported my books like Faith Under Fire in Sudan and in the Killing Fields of Mozambique, Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, lots of examples of, of real persecution. Uh, take uh, Nigeria. In just 10 years, I mean, from 2005 to 2015, I monitored. And that in just those 10 years, there were a 1,000 attacks on churches in um, in Nigeria, in northern Nigeria, 17,000 Christians being killed in, in a thousand attacks on churches in Nigeria by Boko Haram alone, just that one jihadist group. Make no mistake, there's a lot of persecution. I haven't said anything yet about the bombing of churches and kidnapping of Christians and forcible marriages of Christians and so on in Egypt. Uh, there's many other places where our mission has worked, where we can give first-hand eyewitness testimonies of the, the persecution. I've been uh, stripped and beaten and thrown to cells covered in human filth and deprived of food and water and blindfolded and, and chained and uh, dragged through the streets of Livingston and Lusaka and thrown into overcrowded prisons and prison cells and waterboarded and all the rest of it. And, you know, uh, We've met people like Isaiah Moyer, 26-year-old black South African who'd been imprisoned on trumped-up charges of being a South African spy, when actually what he'd done is lend money to some ANC refugees in Lusaka, who decided rather than repay him to accuse him of being a spy, you don't need evidence to uh, make accusations like that. And when we met Isaiah, he'd been severely tortured. He'd been in prison for many months. He had pussy sores all over his body where red-hot pokers had been pushed into his skin. His knees were calloused from hours spent kneeling on the concrete floor. And 
when I was finally released because of international pressure and prayer, uh, I determined to go overseas and testify the reality of the communist persecution in Africa. I received an invitation to speak at the International Society of Human Rights Conference in Frankfurt in Germany, and I used it as a launching pad for my first overseas ministry trip, and I spoke on radio and TV, even on BBC World Service. And later I heard that prison wardens had rushed with their radios to Isaiah Moy within Lusaka Central Prison shouting, Isaiah, Isaiah, that white South African missionary who was locked up here in here with you, he's speaking on the radio. He's speaking about you. And Isaiah told us that he heard the tail end of my interview as I gave people on BBC World Services prison address and requested people to send care packages with salt and soap and sugar and vitamins and pens, pencils, paper and so on. Well, Isaiah said from that time on, he has never mistreated again. Mail sacks of letters and parcels were dragged into his cell. He became the most popular person in prison. He had so many trading items, which everyone wanted. People couldn't do enough favors for him. Uh, and the BBC World Service program had raised him to celebrity status in the prison. And the prison guards treat him with respect. And soon he is free, allowed to travel back to South Africa. He is reunited with his wife and children. And this was my first experience of seeing what an influence Western Christians can have through prayer and pressure. And that was 1987, after my first prison experience. Publicity provides protection for the persecuted. And as our Lord Jesus taught in Luke 18, even an unjust judge will do what is right in response to persistent prayer and pressure. So as virtually every Marxist and Islamic dictatorship in the world is a beneficiary of vast quantities of foreign aid from Western countries, this provides leverage. Most dictators prefer foreign aid to foreign prisoners, so if given a choice, they will let prisoners go free in order to continue to receive the dollars, pounds, or euros. So whatever we bind will be bound. Whatever we loose will be loose. By the power of prayer and persistent pressure, we can see the powers of darkness limited and prison doors open and captives set free. And I've campaigned for and seen numerous prisoners set free because of persistent prayer and pressure. And that's following the, the Luke 18 principle of what our Lord said, that even an unjust judge were do what is right in response to persistent prayer and pressure. On my first visit to America, January 1987, um, no, it was January 1988, I was uh, in in America, in Washington, D.C., the, the um, religious broadcasting uh, conference, and uh, I heard Ronald Reagan speak, and Ronald Reagan said, the most terrifying words in English language are, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. And while everyone laughed, he said, politicians never see the light until they felt the heat. And he asked, please help me keep pressure on the Congress. Well, I think that's a good principle. It's found out in Luke 18, that even an unjust judge will do what's right in response to persistent prayer and pressure. God listens to prayer and politicians only respond to pressure. They've got to feel the heat before they will see the light. That That's very helpful. And so we've set up a website, www.idop-africa.org. So idopafrica.org has got articles and news and PowerPoints and videos and resources and updates to help you mobilize your church or school or business or friends or family neighbors to pray in action for the persecuted and some lessons we can learn from the persecuted. It's got some audios and videos. There's so much we can learn from those who have really been persecuted. And I think it puts a lot of our own problems into perspective. You know, when you think people are, are and, and we all have our problems every day, but you know, it puts it into perspective when I think of that Nuba uh, evangelist that I saw, and I've got a picture of him in my book, an evangelist sitting on a donkey without, he has got no feet. In fact, they chopped off both his feet. and just got stubs there. I mean, how do you lose both your feet? Well, the Arabs, 
axed off his feet at the ankles uh, because he's an evangelist and to show people this is what happens if you take the gospel to your neighbors. Well, when I met this this evangelist and took his picture, um, <laughs> he wasn't allowing the inconvenience, not even feet, keeping him from taking the gospel to his neighbors. Even though he had no feet, he had beautiful feet. The Bible says how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Well, this man was walking his knees, which were very calloused. And uh, you know, just bear in mind, Newton Mountains does not have sidewalks and it doesn't even have carpets, you can be sure. Um, he's walking on rocky ground on his knees or riding on donkey, but he's still taking the gospel to his neighbors. He wasn't letting the inconvenience of not having feet keep him from the greatest priority and from his highest priority. I've spoken in churches that, like in Cowden, Newt Mountains, where they've been bombed 18 times. Well, when I went to encourage them, they encouraged me. The church was full. It was packed to overflowing. I'd, I'd walked several hours to get there, up and over a mountain to get to these folks in Cowder to encourage them that day. But they encouraged me. The church was packed to overflowing. They were not going to let 18 air raids keep them from their highest priority of worshiping Christ. Well, you know, where does that leave the rest of us? I mean, what excuse um, uh, if a person's in England or uh, Sweden saying, you know, the weather's bad today, it's raining, um, it's cold, and I don't feel like it. Uh, I think I'll, I'll lie on the couch and zoom in. Uh, how does this um, compare with our excuses when you think of the persecuted? So I, I think there's a lot we can learn from the real story of persecuted people. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, this um, leads into a few different directions here. Um, I've been finding some... Uh, Sorry, I'm just waiting for it to catch up because I'm getting an echo. So I think that's better now. Right. Um, just to let the audience know, I will be including the link to the idop-africa.org website in the post for this show. Um, I have been sent an uh, article from Breitbart by my friend Pastor Eli James from eurofolkradio.com. This is dated October the 16th, so it's uh, four days ago as we're going out on the 20th. Christians who are caught praying, reciting scripture, or crossing themselves near an abortion centre could be sentenced to up to six months in jail in the United Kingdom. British mm. officials are pushing to have Christians who practice their faith too close to abortion centres jailed under revamped crackdown rules aimed at curbing protests against the practice. Under current legislation, it can already be an offence to audibly pray within so-called safe zones, established mm. around some abortion centres with those running afoul of the rules liable for a fine of up to £1,000. Those who recite scripture, genuflect, sprinkle holy water on the ground, or cross themselves if they perceive a service user is passing by, are also liable for fines under the existing regime in one safe zone administered by Bournemouth, Christchurch and Paul Council. Now that was where I, it was in Bournemouth that I did my probation as a police officer or part of it. So I'm very familiar with Bournemouth. Uh, I'm just delighted I'm not there now. Obviously, I made the right decision to leave the police force if now I'm going to have to uh, arrest people uh, with the prospect of jailing them for protesting. But, well, not protesting, for, 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 for basically evangelising outside an abortion centre. 
However, according to a report by The Telegraph, government bigwigs are looking to greatly expand the severity of penalties for those who fall foul of their rules, with new plans aimed at cracking down on such protests, including provisions to jail offenders for up to six months, should they be perceived as protesting within a buffer zone. Left-wing Labour MPs have also voiced support for the crackdown, with one party official describing the move as being needed to protect a woman's right to abortion. I'm now going to jump over to the Jerusalem Post. Headline, abortion is a Jewish value and should be safeguarded. And this is, it says, National Council of Jewish Women. Abortion is a Jewish value. And the U.S. House. Well, actually, I can play this audio. Let's just hear a little bit of this. Supposed to be playing. Abortion is a Jewish value and should be safeguarded. National Council of Jewish Women. Abortion is a Jewish value and is not only permitted, but in some cases required by Jewish tradition. According to Sheila Katz, CEO of the U.S. National Council of Jewish Women. (laughs) Abortion is a Jewish value and the U.S. House of Representatives vote to pass the Women's Health Protection Act, WHPA, is a crucial step in protecting abortion rights across the U.S., National Council of Jewish Women CEO Sheila Katz said on Friday. There you go. But I'd like to finish off by going to um, Richard Wormbrandt, um, Wormbrandt, who you referred to, Peter. And what's interesting is I tried to look up Nikolai Moldovanu on Wikipedia. No Wikipedia page whatsoever, which uh, is surprising when you consider the work that he did. But then it's not surprising considering we know who runs Wikipedia. But uh, it says in the first paragraph on which of Wormbrand, uh, he was a Romanian evangelical Lutheran priest and professor of Jewish descent. In 1948, having become a Christian ten years before, he publicly said communism and Christianity were incompatible. Wormbrand preached at bomb shelters and rescued Jews during World War II. As a result, he experienced imprisonment and torture by the then communist regime of Romania, which maintained a policy of state atheism. Now, Peter... Sorry about this. Peter, do you think that abortion, he would have supported abortion? Over to you. Yeah, we know he opposed it. We knew Richard Von Brand right to the end of his life, and he was most certainly very pro-life. I mean, this is the thing. Um, no matter what your ancestry, when people are truly converted and regenerated, they're given a new heart and mind, and we're not, we command not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So uh, by God's grace, uh, we can be delivered from any background and... Uh, we all ex something, and uh, but in Christ there is grace, there is mercy, and when you think how the Lord, uh, when confronted by all these uh, Pharisees, these Jewish religious leaders, saying, we've caught this woman in adultery, the law of Moses says she should be stoned, and what did Jesus say? Those of you who are without sin cast the first stone. He was writing on the ground, maybe he was writing the law, reminding him of all the commandments, and from the oldest to the youngest, they all left. And then Jesus looked around, there was no one around, and he said, oh, where are your accusers? And then he said to the woman, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. Now, you can see what a totally different attitude the Lord has. He changes people's lives. He takes Saul, the persecutor of the church, and he turns him into Paul, the apostle of the church. So, and Richard von Brent is a modern example of how the Lord transformed him. I mean, he was somebody who you would think would have been on the other side, and then he ended up being a most dynamic Christian. And he spoke straight to your Congress, uh, to the American Congress. He spoke to the South African Parliament. 
And he rebuked our people severely for uh, compromising with communism and, real, and thinking that you could deal with communism, which is why the media wouldn't say much about him. They prefer to ignore him. But if people want to read Richard Roman's testimony, it's Tortured for Christ, which is also a film. Thank you, Peter. Um, and uh, the other question that I've got for you, going back to abortion again, I know it slightly deviates from what you were focusing on in the show, but um, that's what a lot of people see today as a form of... It, they look back at um, throwing the babies to Molech. Do you think that this is some sort mm. of... Um, that's today's kind of the closest they can get today to that ritual? Definitely. In fact, there's an excellent... Uh, a video documentary out um, called The Abortion Matrix, where it is uh, documented that looking at some of the uh, abortion clinics in America, let's take uh, a local Amer American abortion clinic, maybe it's Mary Stopes and so on, and then they look at the local Wiccan coven and some local occultic or satanic group, and they find the same people. And the high priestess is the director of the Planned Parenthood Clinic and this and all the way down, and showing that there are knowingly, there are occultic satanic groups that are running abortion clinics as seeing it as a holy uh, evangelistic, if you can use it this way, way of getting child sacrifice and seeking the most innocent blood of all. Now, we know that that's true. And so we see in the Bible how they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. And uh, the wickedness that was going on, there was child sacrifice. And this, all the prophets condemned this, of course. And so there were those synagogue of Satan uh, within the land that was meant to be Israel, who were not God's people at all, but were synagogue of Satan who were murdering uh, the children, the, the babies. And we see this theme coming over and over when uh, the uh, when King Herod, who was, of course, an Edomite, uh, where he ordered all the babies in Bethlehem to be killed to try and murder the Messiah. And we can uh, go back even to when Pharaoh commanded that all the baby boys be, be killed. And uh, that's, of course, where Moses' mother contrived the way of getting him saved from this. So there's, the enemies of God hate, hate life. And what's more innocent than the, a newborn baby? And so uh, plainly, as Book of Proverbs says, those who hate me love death. And hating me is talking about wisdom personified, which is God. So those who hate God love death. And you can see this as death-obsessed cultures, whether you're talking about the pyramids of Egypt, uh, where that's a lot of work and lives of, of slaves to build uh, what's effectively a tomb. And you look at the sacrificing of babies, which is what Baal worship was. And so when God commanded people to destroy the high places, those high places were used for, for child sacrifice. So when somebody says this is a Jewish value, well, uh, it may well be, but it's not a Hebrew value. It is not an Israelite value. It may be uh, in the sense of the uh, Judeans who had been in exile in Babylon coming back with the Babylonian um, uh, occultic background and now are coming into land and intermarrying with the Edomites. And so you've got this Edomite-Babylonian uh, mix, and that is reflected in the Talmud. And so uh, when many people think of, of Jewish people of today, of course, you may have those who are trying to be true to the Torah, the law of Moses, and uh, to uh, the principles given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they are a small minority. The majority seem to be more following the Talmudic uh, or occultic um, Babylonian and um, synagogue of Satan angle. And of course, many may actually be uh, related to the Edomites who've historically been enemies of God and heavily involved in sacrificing of babies. So it's an intriguing thing. It should make people delve more into the Old Testament, especially the prophets, 
and uh, real history to understand why it is that in a country that claims to be Israel, you have got abortion. And I've had the head of the um, pro-life movement in Israel in our boardroom uh, at our mission in Cape Town telling us that, in fact, uh, Israel, the state of Israel today, has killed more uh, Jewish children than all the Nazis, Holocaust enemies of Israel have ever done combined. You know, we are killing our own children at a greater rate. And uh, speaking about the abortion Holocaust going on in Israel today, as you can imagine, she is not popular in her own country. Uh, back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, uh, as I say, it's it's something I've I've I heard about. I didn't look into this. Um, uh, lady claiming that abortion is a Jewish value, and I think that's why it's interesting to com contrast it, this with uh, what someone like well, a true Christian like Richard Wormbrand would have thought. And we've <laughs> certainly got an element within a group that are trying to hijack the group as a whole, uh, so they can hide behind the race as a whole and say any criticism of them is criticism of a race, which they can then prosecute people for. Um, but I still get surprised. And just reading that article there about people now who pray audibly outside abortion centres in the UK could be jailed mm. for up to six months. If that doesn't tell you that Satan is running your country, I don't know what will be needed to wake you up. Before we go, Peter, can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? Yes, certainly. Thank you, Andrew. I mean, it's absolutely shocking to think that there can be such infringements on our freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom of uh, assembly. Um, and, of course, people need to read Magna Carta, which is meant to be the constitutional foundation for all law in Britain. And as uh, William Blackstone, one of the greatest constitutional lawyers in British history, said, all law must derive from God's law. Any law that is not rooted and grounded and consistent with the law of God, as summarized in Ten Commands, is no law at all and is illegitimate and of no effect. And uh, that certainly is true. And we've written about this. Of course, our mission in South Africa leads the uh, pro-life movement. We've organized all the life chains uh, for over 30 years, uh, the marches to parliament, the uh, uh, placard demonstrations, sidewalk counseling outside abortion clinics. So we do a lot of pro-life work too, in addition to serving the persecuted church. You can learn more by going on to our www.frontlinemissionsa.org website, frontlinemissionsa.org, uh, or you can email me, peter at frontline.org.za, or as Americans say, ZA. So peter at frontline.org.za is my personal email. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, folks, you have been listening to The Real Story of Persecuted People. I want to thank you all for listening. Peter and I are going to be back with you at the same time tomorrow for an extra show this week. I'll be back with you then. Have a wonderful day and bye. Bye. -bye.